Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Person in 2020, Episode 5. I am unfortunately still such a person, Kelly Phelan. Joining me today is another such person, Gray Berry. Gray, how's it going? Hey, Kelly. It's going really well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you are my first guest from my hometown, White Wright, Texas. Home of the White Wright Tigers. <laughs> Everywhere that I've lived uh, since then, I have the same conversation about this. So I decided to stop telling people that I'm from White Wright because I just don't, I don't know what to tell them. I say, hey, I'm from White Wright. And they go, what? White Wright? Are you saying white and then like right? Like white is right? That's racist. And I'm like, how could you live in a town like that? How dare you be raised there? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the same thing before, too. Uh, I just say North Dallas. North Dallas. That'll work. <laughs> really North Dallas. <laughs> a, a couple stone throws, yes. Yeah, it's a couple couple skips past the suburbs. But uh, <laughs> I don't know that anyone has held me accountable personally for <laughs> living there. But they're just like, disgusted at the idea that there is such a town and there is no seeming remorse for <laughs> calling it white right to be fair there is a w in the middle i mean it's not the word right like correct yeah i believe it was a, a last name wasn't it yeah the guy who founded the town his last name was right white right but then it creates that bigger conversation of well how do you get a surname like that perhaps the nomenclature was racist possibly i don't know i'm not a historian i always figured it was just uh the combination of both of his parents last name white which um is pretty common and then also just right like the wilbur wright and the wright brothers I, I, but i've never thought that hard about it yeah there's a <laughs> if you go it's definitely it's definitely uh, a talking point that's for sure yeah, if you go to New York City, you can bet that there will be some cognitive work to be done about the town White Right. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's been 10 years. We have been on Facebook that whole time, but we have not really communicated. And uh, life has taken us very different places. The last time you saw me, I was a very conservative, outspoken, religious person. Uh, yeah. Um... Yeah, I think you, uh, you were just one year below me, so you were a junior when I had graduated, and that was the last time I'd seen you. Yeah, very different times. Very different times. Now I get to talk about the uh, the best year out of the whole decade, 2020. I like that. It's a little more optimistic than uh, saying the last year of the decade, which sounds fine on its face because it sounds like you're saying the end of the decade, which is technically 2019, but, it's, but another way to read it is the last year ever. But let's hope that's not the case. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> so, Gray, first of all, what is your experience of White Right? Do you look back on that time as good? Um, well, I actually moved to White Right when I was about 12 years old. Uh, before then, I lived in Alaska. Um, I lived there for seven years. And so when I think childhood, I sometimes like to think about Alaska just because it's it's, uh, it's got a certain magic to it. But uh, during my time in White Wright, do I think of it as good? Well, it's challenging. I moved there when I, uh, first year of middle school, 
Um, so everybody had grown up with each other and I was the kid from Alaska. So, it, I mean, it was challenging. It was weird. Just like I think most kids experiences when they move somewhere and especially a small town. And then high school, I mean, parts of it were, are, were excellent and parts of it were um, erased from my memory. Yeah, it's just the high school experience, I guess. It's a, it's, it's a difficult time, but it's full of, of good memories, of, of good friends, fond um, teachers um, that I, I look back to. That's good. You know, I don't hear that a lot, that people had a good time in White Ray, generally speaking, a lot when I reconnect with people from school. Does that surprise you? I guess. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot to do with your experience. Um, um, at school, and I think school can be challenging um, in high school, and I, I can understand how uh, that's not an enjoyable time to look at back to. We did have some truly exceptional teachers, I think, for such a small school. Um, Senior Crawford comes to mind, just a, a joy of a teacher. But uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I get I get the sentiment that you're saying. Yeah, I, I definitely fall in the camp of, wow, that was not good. I don't think it's objectively bad in, in many sense. I mean, certainly in some I do, but more of the fact that I just didn't fit. I mean, I was a young creative and I had so much creative energy and potential and there's really no outlet for it. So I took to making really shitty YouTube videos with my camcorder. You know, I did like 89 videos through high school. And that was like my only outlet. Yeah, I, I'm really thankful you bring that up. I, I love the videos you and Lucas made. Uh, I, they, they were hilarious. And, and when we talked um, a week ago when you invited me to this, I told you it's been 10, more than 10 years since I've seen it, but still to this day, I, I can't forget the duck pond video where you talk about how much trauma these ducks have been through. Um, it just it tickles me to death. To anybody listening, I'm sure it makes zero sense. I, I really appreciated what you're calling these shitty videos. They're, they're funny and, <laughs> and I think probably a joy to look back at and think, what was I thinking when I made this video? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had something like that to look back on. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, the main thing that I look back on in making these really subversive, ridiculous, nonsensical videos was just how unwilling I was to let people in on the joke. I'm like, you either understand what I'm trying to do here with this intentional, like, ridiculousness and disregard for plot and story and <laughs> character, or you don't, and you think, wow, that's shitty, but there was a certain level of intention in it that I think is more obvious now to anyone who goes back and looks at it, especially in the context of internet culture today and how silly it is and anti-humor it is in many ways. Yeah, it would be interesting just for me to go check those out again um, and see, you know, what I think about them now. But in my memory, I, I've really, I have a really positive memory of them. They're, I'm smiling, thinking about it all right now. I appreciate that. Uh, we don't have a lot of, <laughs> we don't have a lot of fans. I think that the average video got about 30 views. I was probably th three of them. It's three of them. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of wish that, and I thought it at the time, I wish I went to a bigger school. I wish that I went to 
at least a suburban school that had film classes. And I'll never forget the day that it came on the ballot for electives for a film class taught by Mr. Bodine. Mm. And I just needed three other people besides me and Lucas to sign up for it, to make it a class. And I could, we couldn't get it. We campaigned for like an entire week talking to literally all 48 of the other kids and couldn't do it. Couldn't find three people to do it. And it was just, um, it was really analogous to how I felt about the culture the rural culture of it and just I resented that so much when I was in it and how limited I felt by all of that and just the greater themes of authority and you can't wear your hair below your ears and silly things like that that I just always wanted to butt up against. Yeah well first I know it doesn't mean anything to your high school self but I'm really sorry that you felt that way during that time and I'm sure those were honest feelings so um, that really stinks and and it there was parts of it that were difficult. Like when I left white ride and went to college to do engineering, I mean, I failed my first math class and I was like, what am I doing? Like I thought I was really good at math and I was really challenged after my, my first year. And um, I'm fortunate that I had people around me that could help and tutor me and, uh, and mentor me and, and I was able to get through it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a leaping off point. And if it's a point that you don't have anything to leap off of, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And as I said, you know, we we're talking a little bit before we came on the show. I just was, I considered myself a theological detective. And I was always investigating what the claims were around us, our beliefs and our somewhat monolithic political sphere because I would consider everyone there conservative. I wouldn't think that there was anyone who was very liberal in any sense of the word that we would think of it today. If there was, I didn't know them and they weren't outspoken and there wasn't really a space for them to be. I mean, the overarching theme was like, you have to support our school system or there's something wrong with you. You have to support like our band and our football team. And those are the things that matter. You know, theater, not so much. The arts, not so much. And if you're not going to get in line with that and be like a good conservative Christian boy, then there's something wrong with you. You know, that, that was kind of the message that I got. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I mean, I can see how you could feel that way, but I didn't feel that immense pressure, I guess, that you're describing. I think, I don't know, like I, I saw how we had a theater program and at that point in my life, that was all I had. So I, I thought it was really interesting to, at one point, be a part of briefly. I took it for a year, but, but I mean, ultimately, I think everyone has very different experiences and no doubt the experience in a small school is going to be much more limited than in a larger school. I guess, it, yeah, I just, I think there's so few opportunities that it becomes like a kind of a black and white not to suggest that everyone's experience was either good or bad, but you're either going to really thrive if you fit in, in a, in a way, because everything is tailor-made for that point of view, both philosophically and in terms of what you're into. Like, if you play football, you're not going to have a hard time. You know, in a bigger school, sports are important too, but there's going to be a significant number of people that don't recognize the value of that, and you're not going to be immediately um, revered for it. And so if you don't, um, it's just hard. And I saw the different ways many different people didn't fit in. 
and whatever their specific thing was that they adhered to the standard archetypes but when they didn't fit in they really didn't and there's so few other like-minded people and i just kind of considered myself one of those people i really hate the h word but it's been applied to me and it's hard to refute but there is a like a hipster quality that I was engaging with at that age that I didn't know about because that word wasn't in the lexicon yet. Yeah, I don't think that was ever said <laughs> at that time. Because <laughs> like I just was trying to defy authority in every little way that I could and like resist the pressure that I perceived to conform and wear these kinds of clothes or not really wear a specific type of clothes, but definitely don't wear these types of clothes. Don't have long hair, don't act like this, don't challenge us here, you know, whatever it is. And I looked for little ways to thwart that. Like I would wear a cardigan and skinny colored jeans to school. And I was the only person I knew who was dressing like this. I just, I just felt like I was fighting something that other people couldn't understand or recognize that was going on because they just kind of took the way we were all raised for granted. Yeah. And I think, I mean, hearing about your experience, I think we just had really different, you know, feelings about it. Like you're talking about football and band and things like that. And I mean, when I was in white, right, I decided really early on, I'm going to do everything I can. I want to, I want to do everything. Not because I want to like have the accolades associated with it. Cause I was not very, I did not have very many awards besides participants and thirds, but, um, I wanted to just experience stuff and I really didn't know what was out there to do. And so like I signed up for the football team, even though I never grew up with football and didn't even know what a college football team was. I signed up for band and um, I really enjoyed playing the drums during that time. And, And I also did a bunch of other athletic stuff like powerlifting and I did golf and track and field. I signed up for like the robotics program and did robotics for two years. And um, I loved doing like the UIL competitions and doing like science and math for that. And so, I mean, I saw it being at a small school, even though no doubt it was limited as an opportunity to be able to take advantage of all these things. Cause now I know looking back that I wouldn't have been able to do all those things if I went to a larger school probably would have been a lot better at all those things. Never was very good at golf, but I got to enjoy it. And I got to enjoy that because we were at a school like White, right? And so I think we got like really different experiences, it sounds like. And I guess it was just like our outlook towards it. And and I and I really feel for the frustration you have um during that time. Um I can I can understand and empathize with how you felt. Yeah. And you do make a good point. Because the small town argument that appeals to parents is there's less things to do, but there's more opportunity to do them. Because if you want to play basketball, you're going to be on the basketball team. You might be on the B team bench, but you're going to get minutes and you're going to play and you don't have to try out for the team and all that. So yeah, if you were a curious person who did find some level of enjoyment in these different programs, I could see that it was probably really great. My cousin was the same way. She was like homecoming queen and like head of the UIL team or whatever. And she's like the best at everything and then went to Harvard and all that. And so she loved it. And that's actually the reason my parents moved there. She was about 12 years older than me. So they moved me there when I was about nine because of her experience. 
And I knew really early on that I just didn't have any interest in these things and certainly not with a lot of the ways in which people were going about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think that kind of is an indicator of, you know, how, you know, you're intellectually challenging things so early on and, and your outlook towards life there. And so, yeah, I, I, it's, I can understand, I can understand where you're coming from. I, I, and I'm thankful that I was able to have the experience I did have. I know um, there's ways it could have been better. And uh, I know for certain there's ways it could have made me initially better at college, um, specifically doing, you know, technical um, mathematics and science. But mostly high school was terrible in the way that high school is terrible for most people because you're just going through so much internal conflict, I guess, with just growing into an adult whether if that's uh, straight up chemical or or just challenging your own worldview, I guess, and then dealing with the people around you. High school is challenging for anyone. <laughs> I can see how if, if you're not even enjoying the things that are available, how it could be even more miserable. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you did have a good experience and I'm really grateful that I didn't feel jealous at the time of people who were clearly enjoying it. And I didn't want to change white, right? I just didn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah. want control. I wanted autonomy. Yeah, I get that. But it is the past. And I do look back fondly on the ways in which I chose to self-improve by making videos. And I would go to the bigger town over Sherman. That was a bigger school. And there was a community theater and I went and did plays over there. And my mom would drive me 30 minutes there and 30 minutes back four nights a week for play practice, just so I could be a part of something a little bit bigger, more like what I wanted. And I would meet kids that went to the Sherman ISD. And I just lived vicariously through them because they were in a big school and they had all these different things you could do. And there was so many people that not everyone knew everyone and you could be who you wanted to be in a way. And there's, there's going to be a space for you to do that. So I was just fascinated by it, but I went on and I got out of there and I went to Florida, then New York, and now I'm in California. So I'm, I've satisfied that itch and I can look more clearly back on it and see what was good about it and, you know, give a little more, grace to people who probably didn't know how to handle me as a teenager. They're like, what is this kid talking about? What is wrong with any of these things that he <laughs> is taking issue with? This is just the way things are. It may be ignorant of me, but I, I don't remember. I don't remember that, but I do remember your, your cool colored jeans. I didn't have any <laughs> colored jeans like that. And, and just to jump back a little further, your mom's the biggest rock star ever for driving you to Sherman four days a week. That's really cool. Bro. Claps for moms right now. Absolutely. Shout out to all the moms, my mom, especially, because <laughs> that was a very generous thing to do because she just knew how like terrible of a time I was having and took pity on me and let me interact with the suburban children. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to all moms. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really the point of this episode, Gray. It's about shouting out, bombs and i'm glad we got here early because we can pretty much wrap up now yeah thank you everybody for joining us uh we'll catch you next week <laughs> uh tune in next week i have a guest who will come on to debate whether or not mom should be shouted out and in what way till then <laughs> thanks again good night <laughs> well gray that was high school that was that was a time that was where we diverted paths now we're a decade later
now it's a decade later and I'm interested what happened in those 10 years and I'm interested to hear how you would define yourself now in terms of a political identity, a religious affiliation, a small town kind of guy, or are you a city guy now? And how would you say you've changed? Wow, that's a huge question. Um, after graduating, I uh, went to Texas A&M down in College Station. Uh, while there, I studied aerospace engineering and got a minor in mathematics. I had plenty of challenges, an incredible amount of growth, um, I was able to be a part of leadership organizations on campus and off campus. Uh, I led in a Christian organization uh, called Impact, where we would disciple uh, other students inside of the uh, going to Texas A&M. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. That was a really special time of my um, college experience. After graduating, I very quickly got married and we got our first job in Louisiana. And so in Louisiana, we spent a year there. Actually in Lake Charles, that's the place that just got hit with the hurricane basically twice now. So, you know, thoughts and prayers to, to Lake Charles. It's a, a dear place um, in my early marriage. I spent a year uh, working there in the construction industry. We were building a natural gas uh, liquefaction facility. It was a $10 billion project as a frame of reference. Um, and, and while I was there, I was a field engineer. After doing that, I moved to Pennsylvania. And when I was there, I was also a field engineer doing mechanical engineering. And uh, we were building a combined cycle power plant. After all that, we wanted to get back to Texas. And so I got a job in San Antonio and I currently do a applied R&D, specifically in mechanical and aerospace engineering. It's a really challenging workspace. I am surrounded by people that are much smarter than me, and I, I really, really enjoy it. And so we've been here for two and a half years and currently own a home in San Antonio. That's awesome. I'm really glad that you had a very positive trajectory after White Road. Yeah, and and I, I got to talk about all of the, the successes and, you know, all the, the, the great memories, but there's a there's a, a large amount of time that we could talk about the gnashing of teeth, not sleeping for several days, it felt like, and, and, and working, you know, 3,000 hours a year to, to learn and, and become, uh, I guess, the engineer I am today and the husband I am today. And it's, uh, it was really, really challenging, but I'm thankful for the experience. And I think similar to my white ride experience, I, I looked at the opportunities in front of me and, and I just kind of left. I'm in San Antonio now. That's cool. I love San Antonio. I don't suppose you find yourself on the river walk too often. Uh, as a as a local San Antonian, no, I do not find myself on the river walk too often. <laughs> it's a cool spot. Um, typically bring family there and friends if they're visiting, but um, there's much greater places to, to go to and enjoy some good food. So you, uh, you hit it on the nail. <laughs> so at the time, in high school, I knew that you considered yourself conservative to whatever degree you were politically aware or active, and then you were Christian. Uh, how do you describe yourself these days? Yeah, um, well, to say I was conservative in high school would be, I guess, an assumption. I really didn't have anything going on in my head with politics. That's probably a reasonable assumption. But today, I would consider myself an open-minded conservative, which probably doesn't have an official 
you know, category, but, but that's where I would put myself. And, uh, I am still practicing my Christian faith and, and I'm uh, very grateful for that. And then I was able to grow up with that. Sure. And there is sort of a meta commentary that I feel like I have to have about this conversation because there's a not insignificant number of people on the secular left who don't think we should be platforming conservative people and we shouldn't be giving voice to what they consider to be problematic people. And they think that there's no room for that kind of discourse. And I disagree. I think it's very important to have these conversations. And yes, there's a certain arbitrary limit that I can agree would be useless, perhaps even problematic to platform someone who was like a neo-Nazi, for instance. But I wanted to have you on, Gray, because as an open-minded conservative, I think there's a lot of room for discussion and points that get made in good faith, because a lot of times there's a certain expectation of how a conservative and a liberal person are going to talk, how a Christian and an atheist are going to debate. I think we are going to be able to avoid that and have something really productive. And for that reason, I think it's worth having you on the show and talking about those differences. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, first off, that you recognize, you know, there's this, I guess, like a, a shutdown of speech from, I guess, the secular left, as you said it. And I think, I think that's incredibly destructive. I think it's important to recognize that, that there's not a, a ultimate solution when it comes to politics. Um, it's an incredibly tricky area. It typically, one solution tends to help people and, and, and may possibly hurt people in the, same, in the same discourse. And so I think it's important to talk about these things and, and not shut down those conversations. And, and that is why I came on and was uh, happy to see that you invited me on. So I'm, I'm excited about it too. And I'm excited that it's not, doesn't need to be a debate when you and I or, or anybody else that has different beliefs, we don't need a debate. Uh, we need to sit around our well, right now we're sitting around our virtual campfire and talking about these things, but I mean, we can gather and, and talk and, and we shouldn't really let the, the media dictate that we can't do that. So I really hope this is not only a conversation where people can challenge maybe what they think, but also hope it's just an example of, you know, the conversations everybody could be having right now. Yeah, I think that we would benefit from not only changing how we approach discourse, but in what medium we do it. Because the text over social media, first of all, it's public. And second of all, it's got no human qualitative element. So you don't know how saucy someone is being. You don't know how sarcastic or if they're being sarcastic or it just leaves too much, too much room for error. And I think that's why we've never held debates in a text format because that would be ludicrous. Can you imagine if like the presidential candidates just texted their responses into things? Well, I would say there's a possibility it could be more clear if we did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, with these with these candidates, yes. Possibly, and, and moderation. Uh, we don't need to get into all of that, to be honest, yet. But, uh, but yeah, uh, what a terrible example what um, these conversations shouldn't look like. But I think you bring up a really good point. And I've been saying it for a little while, but um, 
for me, social media was something I was introduced to um, while I was in high school. I, I had one of those Zanga accounts. I don't know if you remember that. And then a MySpace account and then a Facebook account. And I remember when it was just a wall and it was just your people, like people, you know, saying things and it was weird, but it was fun. Um, I think today we have ample evidence that this social media experience is, is a failed experiment. It's obviously making people more and more agitated. It's not growing many people. For me, it can be a constant distraction and um, you have to have constant efforts to uh, put it in its right place, um, making sure you're not consuming it too much. Yeah, I think, I think it's become dangerous in many ways. Yeah, for sure. I hope to make one of those rare cases for myself in the way I use social media because part of the harm of it is the way the algorithm changes your behavior and directs you to certain things. When I use it to write these like long form essays about these ideas, I feel like, you know, as you said to me, they can be thought provoking. They can put someone who, especially from white right, would never probably come across so, I mean, assuming they still live there, come across a liberal atheist. You know, when I go back for the holidays, I'm, I'm the village atheist. And there's, a, there's bound to be a conversation about that fact. But I think some people are thinking them over and at least considering them. I mean, I don't think I've changed a lot of minds to a point where they've changed as much as me. But definitely just helping people understand because there's, there's a lot of dismissal on the right as well. You know, there's a lot of straw man arguments and there's a lot of ideas that, um, well, how can you be against God if God is goodness? These people are clearly wrong and there's no reason to engage with them. How can these people hate America? America's clearly the best, so there's no reason to engage with them. And I'm trying to create some context that doesn't exist in that bubble, partly because I lived in it and I know how torturous it can be when you find missing puzzle pieces and you don't have access to other information and other points of view. So I think the in-depth essay can be really valuable in that sense. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point. Um, the right is just as guilty of, of shutting down speech on the left and it's a destructive habit and it really needs to be stopped. Yeah, we just, we gotta realize that there's, there's very little that can be so easily dismissed and with such certainty. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say this, Gray. First of all, this almost in a way, I think, should be the first episode that I recommend to anyone because we are about to talk about a lot of things that me and my other guests take for granted because we both agree. So like I've talked to other guests about white privilege. We accept white privilege as a part of reality. So we're not debating whether or not it exists. We're building on that conversation assuming that it does exist. And you and I probably don't agree. And there's so many topics like that, that this is more of a fundamental episode. And it kind of helps me in a way ground a lot of my presuppositions. Because if you listen to the other episodes, you're just going to discern, oh, this guy is pretty liberal, secular, and they're presuming these talking points. So this is kind of an interesting opportunity. Yeah, I agree. I think it is. And I, I think it's interesting to talk about these things, especially in this format, because um, I am not a, uh, a professional conservative. 
and I'm not, I don't have all the answers on every issue, whether if it's political or religious, um, that's part of life. It's part of learning. And to act like you have all those answers is it takes a certain amount of uh, egoism to be able to say that. And so I think it's always great to have these conversations because it's challenging, it's thought provoking and, uh, um, and hopefully you grow from it. And I think that's the point of life is to grow. Definitely. So there's so many things we could get into. I'm just going to pick one at random. So because I used it as an example, uh, what do you make of white privilege? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and to be honest, I, I am not as familiar with exactly what you mean by that. So could you define that and what that means to you? Yeah, for sure. So, well, first of all, white privilege is really spoken about in an American context. So in terms of the world, it becomes a much more complicated conversation because there are places where white people are not the majority in certain nations and it becomes complicated. So for the purposes of this conversation, it's an American institution because white people pretty much own the power structure and there's a certain racial nepotism in the way that people maybe don't operate from this white nationalism necessarily, a white pride, but a certain bias towards non-white people. And so it makes white people privileged by default because we are interacting with each other. We're sharing wealth and opportunities with each other in a way that historically, and in many ways, even still today, isn't accessible to people of other races. So there's a lot of specific components that get brought up when we talk about white privilege, like redlining and Jim Crow laws, the legacy of slavery and the wealth gap that we see today that was created because of it. We've never really righted those wrongs. So it's interesting to me that someone might think that there isn't privilege in a sense that how could there not be if we haven't rectified the discrepancies between white people and non-white people? Yeah, um, I first, I think you did a really great job explaining that. I've not heard an explanation like that thorough before. And so that's helpful for me. Um, but going into it, this is something I haven't thought too much about. I have not, haven't really thought too much about this because it's something I've heard. It's, I'm not um, ignorant of that, but it's, it's something that I, I haven't understood what it even really means and where it's coming from. When you talk about specific things like redlining, Jim Crow laws, and the, the heritage of slavery and its impact to today, I think to say that those things don't exist would be ignorant and uh, wrong. <laughs> um, I, it's obviously uh, a evidence, specifically thinking about redlining, that still the effect is still happening today. Where and and redlining, as I understand it, is um, where there are certain parts of the cities where that were designated as poverty districts, I guess you would call it, and where minorities were put. Um, or, or settled into. Um, is that right? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. The way most wealth is accrued is through property. So if you were forced into lesser housing and you inherit that property, but moreover that debt, because you probably didn't have a paid off mortgage, you aren't accruing wealth at the same rate and in the same way that land owning white males have helped their families generation after generation because you're inheriting that wealth and you get to build from it. And it's not really a disputable concept that it takes money to make money. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the power of, of, of percentages are, is, are very powerful um, interest. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and, and I, I, I see that that's a real thing. I, I don't disagree with that. I think the question is, is uh, what do we do? Because I mean, when you say white owning, pro- white property owning people passing down wealth, I can from a distance agree. Yeah, of course that happens. And probably, well, not probably, surely in greater numbers than minorities. But also like for me, thinking about my own experience, I wasn't passed down any property. I accrued college debt just like anybody else. And, uh, and I was focused and fortunate enough to be able to find work available to to take care of those things and to finally be able to own a house as of last year. Of course, I'm living in a place where it's much more affordable to own a home, not in maybe one of the larger metroplexes on the East or West Coast. Um, San Antonio is very affordable. And that was one of the decisions we made to come here. But I don't feel like I personally have been able to take advantage of this white privilege. And so it's hard to, for me to understand what, what, are, what should we systematically do to fix this? Um, do we, do we encumber white growth more? Do we continue to boost minorities and their growth? And how do we do that in an effective way? Is it, is that a part of the government's role? I guess those are the questions that come to mind to me. And, and I think that's why I've struggled with this, the subject of white privilege. I, I just don't understand what, what's the next step. I guess. And, and maybe that's my own ignorance because I feel like my bit greatest privilege is absolutely because I had two parents in my house. I grew up with a mom and a dad and they both worked hard to take care of me. Similar to your mom taking care of you. Shout out to moms again. Um, moms 2020. It's moms 2020 for sure. But I mean, I, I think that's an incredible privilege. And I, so I think if we want to have you know people to be able to take advantage of that do we find ways to make sure that there are two more two-parent households like how do we do that these are all questions that come to mind kind of on the spot as we discuss this so I'll yield to you I mean what what do you see as if we recognize that yes there is maybe a greater growth beyond for for white people specifically people that own enormous amounts of property I mean, what, what do we do to do that? Do we, do we make this nation into a communist state and, and cut all the property equal? Wow, that, that is a lot. And I'm, I'm happy to address all of that. So because we won't get into it, even though I hope someday to get into it, I have to make a personal footnote because I can't throw my liberal brothers and sisters under the bus and uh, let them let this conversation go without me clarifying that most American liberals are not. They presuppose capitalism is a good thing. It's not on the democratic platform to reevaluate that fact. It's not even Bernie Sanders, the most leftist known politician's idea to change capitalism. It's to introduce slightly more socialism because of course we already have some. So um, I can't let that go unsaid. I think communism is misunderstood in many ways because it's not necessarily egalitarian. So it doesn't mean equal outcome for every person. So there, there, first of all, there's no feasible way to divvy up 
property is of equal value to every person. I mean, that doesn't even need explanation. I'll just put this out there. You should really look into it, anyone listening, because it's fascinating how many types of communism there are. But anyway, I think that the most important thing, first of all, is to not just have an understanding of white privilege, but a comprehensive understanding of it. Because like you have said, and, you, and you've outlined, to the degree that you do understand it, you're on board. And you can admit that something should be done. And you start asking a question like, what can we do? But to the degree that you maybe don't understand it, and it's the furthest reaches of its implications, you're not probably going to ask yourself or others like you to think about it and do something about it because you don't know that there's a problem there. You don't know to the, the extent of uh, how this works and why. And that's, that's why I think, first of all, you have to have a comprehensive understanding. And then you can begin to think about what is in the realm of reasonable political solution and social solution to fix it or at least lessen it. So oh, I, I see two options there still. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think there's a need for a comprehensive understanding. And I think it's probably a, a very multivariable problem. There's a lot of different variables feeding into this. But my charge is the same. I mean, what do we do? And and there's only two things that come to mind. We we continue to boost minorities or we suppress the majority that is taking advantage of this? Well, I think there's trouble with framing it this way because I wouldn't, it, it's, it's something of a false equivalency to suggest that someone's getting suppressed no matter what, and these are suppressions of the same mold because taxing and redistributing some of the unimaginable wealth of people that would render them still unimaginably wealthy could hardly be described as suppression. Creating laws that benefit the worker, which minimizes the profit margins of major corporations, could hardly be described as suppression. And certainly not in the way that people who don't have enough rights are suppressed. So I do have to make that clarification. But the the problem there's a problem you mentioned about having a two-family home, and that was one of your great privileges. Yes, and I also think that's an extension of white privilege because we know that poverty begets crime. Crime begets incarceration. Incarceration means separated families. We know that the statistics show that black people are arrested at three times the rate of white people for the same crime and their sentences are longer on average. So part of white privilege is an opportunity to keep the family together, one that is much harder to do in the situations with people of color who are poor because being white and poor as I was, as my family was in the beginning, when I was born, they were at the poverty line. My dad did go back to school in his forties and now they're a middle-class family, but white poverty, the, the kind I experienced still has more opportunities and more wealth than poor families of color. So there's statistics on how thin that poverty line is because we think of it as one thing. If you're poor, you're poor. But there are really levels of poor. Like for instance, we were poor, but we had a certain amount of equity in our house. And if you live in a terrible neighborhood because 50 years ago, white people forced your family to move there, you don't have equity in your home in that way. And that's going to be calculated into your wealth. And there are a lot of examples of that. So it's a multifaceted difference in poverty. 
And that's why when myself, I used to say this too, all, I was a poor white person at the poverty line. So what privilege did I have? Well, I just didn't recognize it. And then for my dad to be able to go back to college was built on a certain level of privilege of my mom being able to uh, work at an insurance agency and support the family while he did that. There are so fewer opportunities for employment and at that level for a single parent to do what my mom did and create that opportunity for someone to invest in school. So it's a compounded issue. It diverges exponentially. So we are living in the consequences of that racism. And that's not to say that there aren't cultural issues with allowing, aiding and abiding, abandoning your family, because it's not that everyone who isn't home with their family is in jail. But the culture we, you have to understand that these, that non-white people are not the authors of their Americanized lives. We create the culture when we make decisions about groups of people. So for instance, if hip hop music is about how hard you have to be to live in the ghetto, and this is something I witnessed firsthand, it's because there's a entirely different social equity built on toughness because you're discouraging potential abusers from robbing you or from taking advantage of you because poverty begets crime your neighborhood is enveloped in it because of the poverty built on by white people. And therefore, you have to act a certain way to maintain a certain quality of life. And that's a cultural element of hip hop and of American blackness that was authored by white racism. We find that it actually, the well is so deep because that's just one of many examples in which we have created those issues. And we have to take a certain level of responsibility for that instead of just demanding that people start behaving the way white people do. Like we can't just demand that families get together. Can't just demand that people start focusing on going to college because to your other point, the grants and scholarships that exist for people of color is this only way, the sole combatant of that discrimination. And if you look at the numbers, it's nowhere near enough because as Michelle Obama pointed out, there are other types of affirmative action there's college legacy. So you get in because your dad went. There is the many things we've already outlined for wealth built on by white people. So inheriting wealth that was granted to you simply by the virtue of your skin color is affirmative action, but we don't see it because it's not in the law. So it becomes more abstract. And that's what makes this conversation really difficult. Yeah. First, I want to appreciate once again, um, and this is not being political, but your mom and dad are rock stars <laughs> um, for doing that, especially um, if they were already in the poverty line. That's amazing that they were able to do that. And that really should be celebrated, not trying to make a political statement with that. That's, that's, just, a, that's just an incredible story. But to unpack everything you said, you pointed out the fact that Black men are more incarcerated than white men for the same crime. And I, I don't have the stats. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I can agree with that. I, I, could, I could say, okay, yeah, I think, I think that could be true. I, I, I'm, it's not too far-fetched. And I think the drug war, the, the, the jail time that we're having, not just to Black people, but all people um, because of drugs um, is uh, a huge issue. And I think that should be taken care of on the federal level where 
we really reconsider what, how to treat this really global problem of addiction. Addiction is terrible and uh, it, it's hurting a lot of people. Um, and it's not just hurting them directly, it's hurting them indirectly because of the money that can be made from addiction. And so I think that's one issue that needs to be looked at. And if black men are being incarcerated because of, uh, of drugs and, or holding drugs or whatever it is, more worse than white people, that needs to be taken care of by the DAs. And I think people need to be accountable when they go to their elections, understanding what their DA is, um, what they do, and making sure that they're held accountable to, to protecting the citizen. Their job is to make sure that the law is upheld and equally and uh, correctly. If what you're saying is true, then that's a major issue by the DA. Still, the issue of this inequality I'm still seeing is based around the fact that there's two parents at home. When you have one pair at home, you're at an extreme disadvantage. I think I agree with what you're saying earlier with like, what should the government do about it? They can't tell you to stay at home with your kids or whatever. Um, I don't think the government can do much about that. I don't think they could, and I don't think they should, but I think we need to, to really focus on what the, the sanctity of the family. And I think that's something, an institution that we're losing more and more. And that's not just a secular thing. That is also um, a religious thing. Um, Christians in the same way are having their families abandoned and that's a terrible thing. And I think that's having a larger effect than we're giving attention to. And then lastly, you're talking about how we can't be the authors of our fate, I think. Um, with the current system. And, and I think there's evidence that we can be. I think your parents are an example of it. I'm an example of it. As a minority, we see Asians performing really, really well in the American institution, and they're moving here to take advantage of what we have. And so they're a minority too. You could talk about the difference in education, the fact that they're coming from another nation and that they weren't already here, and that's why they have their success. But it's hard for me to say it's just because my white privilege, um, people can't be the author of their own fate. It's, that's a hard thing for me to yield on. I think there can be solutions here. And I think this is a discussion that could go long and long, offline or online. I think we really need to focus on the family and focus on the sanctity of that institution. I think that has a huge impact to the success of the children that we're going to have in this nation. Well, yeah, and I'm glad we're I'm glad we're getting to this point because nothing I said is the only factor. And I don't want to paint a picture that anyone who's not white is helpless and anyone who's white is uh, ripe with opportunity. I mean, of course, there are millions of factors in society and thousands in people's individual lives that shapes their fate. To your point, yes, the family is important, but I would want to address that statement and then talk about the religious foundation of it. But yeah, we have the numbers. Two parent households are better than one parent household, and it's not hard to imagine why in terms of the statistical outcome of success for the children. But what the government's role is, is it's certainly not to sanction the importance of marriage 
It's certainly not to uh, curate a culture of togetherness through whatever means that would be. It's to uh, right the sociological wrongs of our past and create economic opportunity for people to build their own lives and their own culture. Because as I outlined, a lot of these familial issues are because of the economics of how their people were treated. And you find that it's true even in the white community. The poorer the white people are, the less likely they are to have education, the less likely they are to put a a great amount of significance and focus on education. The more divided homes there are, the less wealth there is, and the more crime there is. It's true for everyone. Poverty begets certain sociological outcomes. So the government's role in that is to change policies that create that economic disadvantage. To address the family situation, I like to use the full house example because it brings up a point that I don't think the show is trying to make, but becomes important in this discussion, which is that two people are better than one because it's two incomes versus one more often than not. Yeah, you can talk about how much better it is for two people to be in love and share that family experience with their children versus someone who doesn't have a life partner and the way that affects their mental health. And we can get into that too. But primarily the economic advantage is having two incomes. And in Full House, there's like five, 10, 30 people that live in this house and they're all supporting these kids. Uh, That's presumably how they afford that house in San Francisco, which I'm sure is worth millions of dollars, even in the late eighties. (laughs) But that would be better than marriage. We can't circularly prove religion and its usefulness because it sanctions marriage and because marriage is better than singleness. You know, it becomes a circle when I can easily just say having five people in your household who all support the same two kids would be even better because it's not really proving marriage is better. It's proving that two incomes is better than one. The problem with marriage and and its religious sanctioning has historically been that it's very exclusionary because we believe the institution was created in a certain religious context and has certain demands and requirements. And the prerequisite of being cisgendered straight people, a man and a woman, is discriminatory and it has its political implications because there's no real proof that a man and a woman are superior to a marriage between two loving men and two loving women, two loving non-binary people, because... First of all, we don't have enough time to study that. We've only had marriage equality for five years. And then also, even if it didn't, I mean, it it wouldn't change the moral issue of that. It wouldn't change the fact that we have an ethical obligation to allow consenting adults to take advantage of our essentially government contract for love, which has a lot of uh, financial benefits. But there's there's nothing that supports marriage outside of what I've already described, other than a religious claim that God wants it to be this way. So it leads me into this question about how you go about your faith. What is your epistemology? What makes you accept these claims? Well, I I grew up um, in a a Christian household, um, probably similar to you. And uh, my parents, whether uh, I think it's their own wisdom allowed us each to to make our own decisions Um, i never felt pressured to um like 
um, commit my life to Christ or, or to be baptized or anything like that. Um, the, the only pressure, and, and I guess you would say it would be a pressure, um, the greatest pressure is that whenever we did attend church, um, that we were there with him. And, and for me, church was always, as a child, a, a fun experience because I got to be with other kids. But uh, growing up, I mean, uh, I think it's important to understand uh, as a child um, through Sunday school that you're, you're drinking milk. Your, your faith is very simple. Um, but as you grow up, it's important to abandon that milk and, and get some meat and, you know, and grow up um, and learn what the things you believe and what they mean and, and how to act. I've had an ample challenge through, uh, through college and, and through moving around the U.S. And, and I, I've still held my faith um, to this day. I um, was married under vows um, through the church. My grandfather actually officiated that wedding. And, uh, and I think my faith is really important to my worldview and, and what I believe. To, to debate whether or not uh, my faith is, is actually a real thing um, or if it's all just uh, fairy tales, that's, that's something that's been debated for many, many years and takes many, many hours. So it's hard to get into that. Um, in this format um, with the time that we have here. But, uh, but I count it as very important and, and, and part of the success I've had. And, and I don't count it as the success I've had because um, of the good fortunes awarded to me for being a Christian. I think a lot of people look at it like that. I think God does bless us in the way of providing good fortunes, but I think it's a lot less than people give credit to, to be honest. I think God is most prevalent by the example, the representation he's give, given to live a life. The, the, the Bible and the um, Old Testament and New Testament and the description of not only laws and rules and commandments, but also um, how to love and things like that. I don't think you have to be a Christian to understand what love is. I don't think you need to be a Christian to understand what morals is either. And I think that's sometimes like the simple claim of Christianity. I think you would agree with that. But what I think it does, those, those, those institutions, love, morals, I think those are an eight within the human experience, within our soul. But I think the Bible allows us to, um, just like um, science broadens our understanding of nature and how it works, I think the Bible its teachings and what the faith, what's in the doctrine of the Christian faith helps us understand morals and, and helps broaden our experience and, and, um, and gives direction when we can't find direction. I don't know about you, but a lot of my life, I feel, I felt very directionless and, um, and I found peace and reassurance in my faith. And so concerning your question about my faith's contribution to marriage, um, I think it has a huge contribution. Um, I think practiced and thought about, and once we leave the milk and eat meat um, and really think about how our faith impacts being a husband or, or being a wife, I, I, think, I think it empowers your marriage. Concerning like the government's role in that, um, I believe that this government was formed with the freedom of religion and I do recognize 
that we were based on Judeo-Christian beliefs. But um, as we progress, I understand that that has to change what it means to our government. And so the fact that that gay couples and, and other types of couples are just being able to start to get married, I think, I think that's a celebration in the sense of the government. Um, and I think we need to think about what marriage means in a state sense, like um, state marriage versus the uh, marriage through um, the Christian faith. And I think they're different. And I think that's okay. Um, I think they're just, I, I don't know if we need to call them different things, but I think the fact that people are able to take, a, take advantage of, as you've said, the economic benefits of being a couple, um, a married couple, um, and that's being shared to more and more people, I think that's a good thing. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I think my faith is incredibly meaningful in my life and my worldviews. I think it's helped me become a more loving person and less of a hateful person. Um, and I know that's not the experience of many people, especially people that are not Christians. But I think it's important and imperative um, as a Christian to recognize that we are called to love, um, love each other, not each other as Christians, um, but love each other in this world. No matter your belief or your creed, as long as you're not a murdering maniac, you're deserving of, of love. Um, and, and even if you're a murdering maniac, there should be a way to find love um, still there. And so, uh, yeah, my faith is incredibly important. Um, and concerning marriage, uh, I think it's a celebration for the state that marriage is being looked at in a broader sense. Well, I, first of all, I have to commend you on recognizing the need for separation of church and state in that way and the ethics of marriage equality. I think a lot of religious people are missing that. And it speaks to a broader point about the way this discussion has gone, because for you to even acknowledge that there is some level of white privilege is not consistent with the conservative paradigm. To suggest that marriage equality is valid and good for our government is not consistent with religious talking points. So I guess I'm curious, to what extent do you hold people on this side of things accountable? And what do you think should change for them if they're going to remain in an insular political and religious bubble? Well, I think that challenge can be to both sides. Um, but I'll talk about the conservative side. I, I think I think we need to continue to have these conversations. I think that's the answer. I think um, we've allowed ourselves as a nation to be um, divided by, um, by our leaders and by our media and by this failed social experiment. And we need to alleviate for ourselves from that. It wasn't very long ago that the social media experiment didn't exist. Like it wasn't even a thought. And at that time, I'm not going to say things were greater, like everything was better then, but we could talk. We could sit down um, on the front porch and talk. And I think we've abandoned that. We've literally abandoned that because of coronavirus. Um, but I hope that it can return. And I'm thankful that we can at least sit around this virtual campfire and talk about it now. For sure. And if there's any distinction to be made in regards to social media, I think it would just be that the way companies have created a business model out of manipulating people to become angrier and 
curate their behavior in this way to make them more likely to purchase products and see certain types of information and types of posts and people that they're likely to engage with. That's the part that has to change. I think there's a viable model to social media because there's never been an opportunity in the history of humanity for the proletariat to communicate and cooperate in this way because it's making average everyday laborers reconsider the system they're in. It's helping people realize the concept of privilege. It's helping people realize that they're being taken advantage of in a late stage capitalist society. And to whatever degree that results in people's opinions about capitalism or our society is neither here nor there in the sense that they just deserve to be informed about it instead of just given the public education propaganda of how great this country is. And there's no real problems. Every problem is based on an individual's own failings and uh, whatever that narrative becomes. I have to disagree with you on one thing, and it's a big thing and probably a fundamental thing. And I just want to make sure it's said. I, I think, I believe, and I see evidence that there's very few other places you can live and be the author of your own fate America provides tremendous opportunity for many people. It's not an excuse for us to abandon trying to continue to pursue a more balanced and equal system, but uh, there's immense opportunity here. And, and to say this is a failing nation, I think is um, a belief in the extreme negativity of the, the media and the social media experiment. And, and that's a belief of mine. And I think that may disagree maybe in contrast to what you believe, but I, I think this is really an incredible country. There's people of all different types of creed living together. The fact that we can do that is pretty exemplary compared to mo most other nations. There's not another nation that's as big of a melting pot as our nation. And we've grown and we've learned a lot. And so I, I think that's a fundamental disagreement there. I think we do in many ways own our opportunity. And, and we could talk about um, the nuances in between there, and I think we already have, but there's no doubt there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, and it's not to the credit of Donald Trump, it's not to the credit of Joe Biden, but it's the, to the credit of the founding of this nation and the people within it continuing to challenge and vote and grow, whether if that's through the Civil War, the civil rights movement um, among many, many, many um, stages of, of change and good change. So I, 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 you say like late stage capitalism, like we're about to like die of cancer. I think we're about to die of cancer because of the enormous amount of, of, of negativity, of just blatantly incorrect data and, and, and views being shared um, and that they're being, and that Basically, the left and the right are jousting right now. Um, I don't think we need a joust, and I think we can talk, and we can still have different opinions and solutions, but I think we'll find that in time our solutions are closer than either of the, the, the left or the right and their leaders would be uh, willing to admit. So, yes, and um, there's so much more that we could discuss. We could have our own entirely separate series about these broader concepts. And one of them would be me attempting to engage with the claim that this is a great nation and there's no time for that. But yeah. I, guess, I guess the more important or salient thing about that statement to me that I think is important for these conversations is just that I want people to realize that there's a fundamental advantage 
to siding with the status quo. Because anytime that you reaffirm not only what the majority of people feel in the, in the way that they live, you, you're operating from a privilege of intuitive appeal that is going to resonate with a lot of people because if you're not really working with a vast body of research, um, you're kind of relegated to your intuition. And if you say something intuitively appealing about the status quo, it's probably going to resonate and you're going to have a stronger sounding argument. So I just want people to be aware that it is much harder to come from behind in a way that you are a dissenting voice against religion when the world is 90 something percent religious, when you are a communist of some sorts in a world that's never even gotten the chance to try it. When you are making a claim about things, of course, it's going to sound inherently negative, and we are wired as human beings to avoid negativity and pain and anything associated with that and to seek pleasurable experiences. And there's nothing more pleasurable that I can imagine than having a stable faith, having that faith sanctioned and represented by the culture you live in and believing that things are ultimately good and working out. The personal benefits of that are probably immense. As, and as you've explained, there's no way I could argue against that. I'm sure it is extremely pragmatic um, to that end, but it, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to deeper discussion because we don't just need civil discussion reintroduced. We need deeper discussion reintroduced. And part of that means engaging with a lot of claims that we take for granted. And yes, that happens on the right and the left, because when I go back to my left bubble and I have my next guest on who probably adheres to the understanding of white privilege and we begin talking about it without challenging the nature of whether or not that's even a thing, we are in our own senses benefiting from that intuitive appeal. So I, I hope we can minimize that effect and I hope people can engage more honestly with things that they take for granted. So given that the examples you cited of where this country has grown and where our proudest moments of epiphany have come from, they were, they were from the left. We can talk about the fact that the Republican Party was started as an abolitionist movement, but it's no secret that Republicans today are not liberal. The liberal ideology of abolition, uh, rejecting that status quo of slavery that dominated our economy and the way we do things and the way we think, which was also, unfortunately, sanctioned by religion. Perhaps not well, perhaps not in a way that we could agree is well-cited, but it nonetheless is sanctioned. That dissenting opinion made it very difficult for abolitionists. Same thing with the civil rights movement. Same thing with marriage equality. Those are all liberal movements about dissenting people who are quote-unquote being negative because they're attacking the status quo. They're attacking the pride of the nation. They're saying there's fundamental deep issues here and you're either negligent to them or you're being dismissive of them because the pride you have and the optimism you have is getting in the way, which leads me to a question for you. Are you familiar with the term toxic positivity and do you think it in any way plays a negative effect? No, you want to define that? Yeah, so toxic positivity is, at least in a political sense, false optimism, which in the absence of engaging honestly with the potential negative reality of something creates consequences that that person doesn't have to face. So if you feel optimistic, for instance, that our, our nation is great and it's very fair, it's more fair than unfair. And so we don't need to 
bog ourselves down in the negativity of white privilege. There are non-white people who are going to pay that price as the majority turns its back to what they consider to be a negative thing. And they're going to enjoy the privilege of not having to engage with it. So toxic positivity manifests when the reality of something is negative and we're pretending that it's not for our own peace of mind and then passing that bill across the table. Sure. Yeah, toxic positivity. Um, first thing I thought is, is that's a very weird word. <laughs> um, this is what I think. You could say it's toxic positivity that I think America is a great nation and that we've been able to grow the ways we've grown and that we have a democratic um, system that's able to do that. But uh, that doesn't sound like toxic positivity. I mean, if the problem is my whole outlook at everything, then I would go back to my outlook towards our time at White Right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not dumb. I know exactly what you mean with the opportunities that were provided to us and that they were not as large as a larger school would provide. But I took those opportunities that were available and I used it so I could grow. And I've taken that approach with many things that I've done in my life. So I don't feel like that's a toxic approach to life. And as that applies to politics, I, I can't tell you the, the term, but that seems like a really silly argument to be honest, that I can look at this nation and say that it's great. Um, that's kind of a spit in the face of my brother and his service and, and what I do and everybody else in this nation is doing to try to take care of each other. So I, I don't think that's what you mean um, by that, but that's how, I, that's how it sounds to me. I think, I think uh, as I've said, I've, we've got places we can grow in and things we can adjust in, but I think the government's role in my opinion, is pretty clear. The, the less it's involved, the better. And we can, I think if we depend on the government to, to maintain a military and maintain a currency, we can allow our states to, to, to make the decisions that they need to make to take care of their citizens. Concerning social change, which a lot of this discussion, I think, has been around social change. I think it's important to grow and progress, but I think, uh, I think we need to prioritize the important things in our nation with um, what the federal government's role is, which is uh, making sure that this is still a nation in four years, whether if it's the currency staying maintained and uh, whether if we have an active military that is ready to, to protect. And in my opinion, that's a military that is overwhelmingly strong. It doesn't mean it needs to be overwhelmingly involved with other, um, other nations, but I think it needs to be overwhelmingly strong to to prevent or to be an effective defense against other nations. I think those are the topics that matter m much greater to me. And I think your response would be that that's my white privilege. But uh, I, I think the, the thought of toxic positivity is definitely new to me. And if, if someone were to say I was toxic positive, then I... I, I'm not sure what I would do. <laughs> I'm not sure what I would say, but uh, I think this country has an overwhelmingly amount of uh, evidence for the um, opportunity that we have here, no matter who your creed or who you are. And uh, you could say that there's evidence that um, that didn't exist in the beginning, 
this is a nation that's been drafted to be able to adjust and move. Lastly, you'd say the left takes credit for most of those changes. And I could say, yeah, that's true. But, um, but there's also destructive things um, uh, that the left proposes. And, and I think probably one of the bigger ones is communism. I think that's going to not allow, not because of the institute that you describe and hope for, but because the institute of, uh, of a dictatorship um, quickly forming for that to happen. And I think that's extremely dangerous. And I, I think that's something that makes me a conservative is the, that I want the government to be limited and not even more involved than it already is. Sure. And I, I appreciate you speaking candidly about it because that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. You know, if, if you find an argument to be absolutely silly, it, it really should be stated that way. We can't afford at this point in discourse, I think, to grant credence where there may not be any and to aid and abide things that we find to be problematic. I would say that there's a huge difference in the way that toxic positivity manifests personally and in the way it manifests politically. Personally, I don't think what you did in White Right or what you have done since is toxically positive as an individual. And to an extent, that is a balance everyone has to ask themselves because being an activist is kind of the same thing. Like I and many others could be enjoying more of their free time that I give to like Justice LA or New York Cares when I lived there doing this kind of activism. There's no doubt that I would personally benefit from using that time for myself. And I don't think anyone should spend all their time being an activist. I don't think everyone should spend all their time on themselves. So the problem with it politically is that we extrapolate our own individual experience in the way being positive in our life has worked. And we put it out into the world without a lot of regard for the different starting lines in which we have put people. And by we, I mean our ancestors and even by our current governments who perpetuate things. When we tell people, just make the most of what you got, because everyone has a different starting line, it negates, fails to understand the fundamental differences in, as I said, white and black poverty, or opportunity on paper and opportunity in real life. In a country that is religiously nepotistic, that is politically and racially nepotistic, it's not the same thing. And if, if we can both agree to making a more equally opportune nation, we're just disagreeing on, on how far we need to go and to what end we need to achieve that. But toxic positivity is only important to me in the way that it fails to understand people's problems. And if there was a way that you could be toxically positive as an individual, this might be an example. So you imagine that someone has come to you and their parent has died. And instead of consoling them, the first thing you say is, yeah, but you're not dead. Look on the brighter side. I would consider that toxically positive because that's not what someone needs to hear. There's no doubt that I think anyone would disagree with that there's a time to process tragedy. And that means engaging with something that is truly negative, at least more negative than positive, and being honest about that fact. And letting yourself feel negative emotions about it could be considered negative, but I would argue it has a positive effect. And there is room to be toxically positive in any sense, but it's more important in the political sphere. I would never want to make you or anyone feel like I would spit in the face of a veteran 
or that I don't appreciate the good that people do in every community every day, or the ways that even someone like you is putting themselves out there in this conversation to come and explore new ideas and see how we can grow. And I do appreciate all of that. But there's a troubling implication to me when we make a fallacious appeal to consequence that something can't be brought up or a concept can't be investigated because it's disrespectful. That to me is kind of authoritarian. And on that note, we do live in a capitalist nation. We have the mythos of American greatness that we have. I want to contend with them, but I don't aim to disrespect anyone. However, if that's how someone feels as a result, I can't let myself be deterred because it's more important that we get to the bottom of things, in my view, than consider if people think something is precious. So I don't know how you feel about that, but that's kind of where I make my stake and find the ethos of explaining it publicly. But what do you think? Yeah, I like how you said that, um, where you're not going to basically burden yourself if if someone disagrees with you essentially is what you're saying and and I think that's important too when we're having discussions we need to recognize if someone is uh, not open-minded and not willing to change that you don't need to be affording them the uh, effort that you're putting into it I think that's kind of what you were saying maybe a roundabout way but yeah I agree with that and I think you've said that before on the podcast and uh, and I think discussions like this, where we can be open minded, maybe not maybe not be able to agree, but but we can tolerate the discussion we're having. I think I think it's important to have those discussions. You can believe what you believe, and and uh, and I think that's that's excellent. This is a nation you can do that in. You can post this podcast online and not get in trouble for it, um, which is incredible. I think that's very unique, and. I'm thankful that we're able to do that. And, and in more time, and I'm sure offline from here, we can talk more and more about what that looks like for you and why you think that's important to compare to what we currently have as a government. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I can agree that the First Amendment is important. I don't know if I can agree that it's unique, the way nations have developed over time. I, I'm not here to say that America has nothing good about it, because certainly it does. I just think that what's wrong about it must be addressed and swiftly. And the problem with a lot of our discourse is we can't agree not only on what the solutions are, but what the problems are. So it is a balance, both personally and politically, to take time to appreciate what is good, appreciate that I can have this podcast, appreciate positivity in my personal life and taking a break from all this and all this thinking and just living life. You wouldn't know from social media, but I do take that time and it's important to balance everywhere. I just hope that people will come around to putting their most precious beliefs on the line and allowing them to be thoroughly examined without the propensity we have to defend and um, excuse because they're part of our story. And so in that, I have to say, Gray, thanks again for coming on. If you have any closing remarks, that, that'll that be fine. But I really appreciate this conversation. This has been pretty eye-opening. And you're very articulate. I don't think you've given yourself enough credit because you are laying out the conservative and religious paradigm really well and making it easy for us to digest as listeners. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. That's, a, that's quite a compliment. That, that really means a lot. 
it's been a pleasure to be on here. It's been more a pleasure to be able to just catch up with you and hear about your life. And I really hope uh, we can talk more after this, uh, probably offline, but uh, it's been a pleasure. I don't really have a, a uh, public presence, I guess, but if you do want to contact me um, um, and you don't know me, you can contact uh, my email, which is grayberry2020 at gmail.com. That's G-R-E-Y-B-E-R-R-Y 2020. And uh, I mean, if you've got questions or complaints or you're just angry and want to vent online, this is a perfect inbox to put it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's been a pleasure, man. And uh, I, I really wish you the best. And uh, I hope that the um, rest of these conversations are uh, helpful and um, challenging and um, in a, at a time to grow. Thanks again. Yeah, great. And I I am realizing now just how little about 2020 has come into this conversation uh, because these were broader ideas, um, more so than how they've manifested this year specifically and in this election year. But it only reminded me because you have 2020 in your email and that is the most 2020 thing about this episode. Well, you say that and partially is true, but also I think if anything, my hope and my goal of this podcast um, was to maybe, if I could say, provide an example of maybe we can talk about issues and maybe we can talk about it in different ways. I don't think everybody needs to make a podcast, but um, I mean, if you're, if you're talking on a thread on a Facebook article with people, um, if there's somebody you know there and you're talking with them, take it to Facebook Messenger and talk to them. And if you really are interested and they're interested, take it to a phone call. There's really easy ways to do it. Um, and, uh, and this is a great time to talk um, using the resources we have like social media and not just ingesting it and, and becoming more and more um, angry at the world because there's a lot of evidence to be angry at the world with 2020 and, um, but uh, I think I think we've allowed ourselves to be uh, tort by the media I have to unequivocally agree to that so I'm glad we could find that common ground here at the end and I'll say thanks again for coming on Gray and I hope people really enjoy this episode thanks again Kelly you stay safe okay you too all right, everyone, that is the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. I know that there is a lot that we didn't get to. We both know that because we covered so much territory that we weren't able to respond to everything that got said. So if you're looking for more discussion between Gray and myself, tune in for the 19th episode. At least it's scheduled to be the 19th episode. It will be a recap where everyone comes back on and has about three to five minutes to reflect on their episode and add any additional thoughts if they have any. So me and Gray will get into some more territory there. As we said, we encourage you to have these conversations. We hope you'll agree with us that this conversation was meaningful and that more like it should be had. Thanks again, and we'll see you on episode six.